What a feed. Try to get stick on stick, limit those assisting plays. Passes off. There's the cut and a goal. Absolutely mind-blowing. Terrific save. She takes it and scores. They don't make excuses. They keep believing. The woman up, they get the extra possession out of the false start. And there it is. A flamethrower from the stick. They turn. Hello everyone, welcome back to Chicks with Sticks episode 14. Today's episode is going to run a little bit differently. Um, unfortunately, Delaney is not with us in this episode because she's on her girl boss law school grind with finals and everything. But today I interviewed W. Scott Lewis of TNG Consulting. Scott is a managing partner at TNG. Um, today I interview him and we talk about Title IX and the different athletes and students that he works with and basically just kind of how he got to be where he is today. Um, it was super interesting. He is a great guy and I hope you guys enjoy it. All right. Hello, Mr. Scott Lewis. How are you doing tonight? Great, Ashley. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, unfortunately, Delaney could not be with us tonight because she had some prior law school obligations that she had to attend to, but we're super excited to do this. Um, I actually saw a little bit of a lecture from Scott. Um, he came to Wilkes and talked about his job and what he does. And it was so interesting. And I thought because we had kind of planned on doing a Title IX episode anyway, it would be super nice to talk to someone who's immersed in that field. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Scott Lewis, and I am the managing partner with a group called TNG. And what we are is a legal and risk management consulting firm located in, well, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a place called King of Prussia. And um, <clears throat> we have been in business now for over 20 years and really deal with anything that brings risk to any part of education. So we deal with not just pre-K to 12, but also higher education and uh, really focus on uh, mostly behavioral risk. So Title IX obviously falls into that as one of the, it does any civil rights discrimination, but also harm to self and harm to others. And we try to do prevention work and response work. And then we work with the government and Congress and the White House on trying to uh, help them write better legislation and help them understand how to enforce laws like Title IX. Uh, but when I was visiting, the speech that Ashley was referencing is really specific to athletics. And it's part, it's kind of half of what uh, Title IX is. And I'll, I'll, today when we talk, we go back and forth, we'll kind of talk through both halves. And you can see how Title IX really works in a lot of different ways. Awesome. Um, just a quick question. I see that it is light where you are. It's pretty dark here. Where are you right now? We're located in, uh, the firm is located in King of Prussia. I'm located in Denver. Oh. So we're kind of spread out all over the country. We've got uh, partners in Columbus, Ohio, uh, Maine, Pennsylvania, uh, Los Angeles, and then we've got some uh, some of our consultants and associates in, gosh, Florida, Chicago, Texas, Baton Rouge, uh, all over the place. We've got about wow. fourteen of us that work full time and uh, try to try to cover the U.S. Wow, that's really widespread. Um, I love Colorado. We were I just went there over the over a summer break. My friend was living in Telluride, working at the ski nice. area. Yeah, so it's. Okay. It's beautiful there. Yeah, we love it here. I live in actually in, in Denver proper. Um, we moved out here about 12 years ago um, and uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, although awesome. we've, we've not had any snow and this is the latest we've not had snow in Denver ever since mm -hmm. they started measuring it in the 1800s. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. So for anybody, uh, this, this is climate change at its finest right here. Yeah, seriously. Uh, so we're waiting, hopefully get some snow next week. They've gotten some of the mountains, so the ski resorts are open, but it's just not a great situation, so. Yeah, I also have a friend who lives in Arvada, and she she said that it's, I mean, most, most seasons it's crazy and you just never know what's gonna happen, but that's wild that it hasn't even snowed a little bit yet. Yeah, it was uh, 67 and warm here oh today. God, that's crazy. Like early fall, so. Hopefully we can get some cold weather, get ourselves our tourism stuff going and uh, get back to where we need to be. So. Seriously. 
All right. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into where you are today, like your education, everything like that? So I started, um, I went to college at Texas A&M University and got my degree in psychology. Uh, My minors were, you don't really have minors there as you might think of them. Uh, So just how many hours you have, you've accumulated in in other fields. So my others were marketing and uh, theater. And so psychology, the plan was to go into some sort of psychological marketing. And then that, that didn't last. I didn't want to be a psychologist. And uh, so I immediately started, I left for one semester, then came back for graduate school. And my graduate work was in higher education administration, which is an actual field, also called student personnel sometimes. And that is, um, there's masters in it, you can get a doctorate in it, but it's effectively running colleges. And so all the people, if you're listening to this and you go to a college, uh, so all the people who are involved in everything that's not the academic side of the house, so orientation and health services and uh, this dean of students office and the counseling center and all the fun stuff too, like student government and student life and athletics. Most people get their degrees in that kind of administrative field. Uh, and so athletics is a little bit different because you can get sports administration as well. So I got my graduate degree. Uh, I was working on it there and um, got offered a job there. So I stayed there for a few years and taught and worked in mostly student conduct and housing and then left there to go to law school. And I went to law school in Houston at the University of Houston and worked at a law firm briefly uh, before I came back in education where I eventually was the associate vice provost at the University of South Carolina Uh, working at the main campus, but with the whole system. And that's really where I started working in earnest in the area around Title IX and civil rights. Um, In between there, I got a mediation certificate. I went through some law enforcement training. Um, I went through some uh, folks at the FBI do these workshops where you can learn interrogation and interview technique and hostage negotiation skills. Uh, But I really focused really heavily on learning how to do trauma-based and trauma-informed interviewing for people primarily of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And did enough of those and kept working in that area to now where I train those individuals. And so through TNG, we're also the parent company of a group called ATICSA, which is the Association of Title IX Administrators, and NABITA, uh, which is the National Association of Behavior Intervention and Threat Assessment. And a lot, there's a lot of crossover there when you're dealing with people who've been traumatized or suffering through traumatic areas, uh, traumatic experiences, and learning how to talk with them and do the investigations properly. So we've trained thousands of investigators over the years. And that's, that's just kind of the half of Title IX that is really the part that's gotten the most press over the last six, seven, eight years uh, is the sexual harassment, sexual misconduct side. Um, So I worked there for a bit, did a short stint with St. Mary's College up in Indiana as a special counsel, and then came on as a partner with TNG. But I've been working with TNG since the early 2000s in some form or fashion. And so my career has always been focused in education. That was that was always the goal. Once I realized I was not going to go into marketing or psychology, it was like I want to work in education and went all in. And uh, it's been very, very exciting. And it's been a great ride. That really sounds like you've lived yeah. a thousand lives. Yeah. A couple of other pieces um, that are out there that are germane to what we'll talk about today because they're, I don't know, Title IX direct related and Title IX adjacent. So myself and uh, three of my partners um, were also, we were the group that helped the Obama administration writing the You Are Not Alone report back in 2016, I think it was, 15 or 16. Um, and then adjacent to Title IX, um, I was asked to serve on the task force for the for the then U.S. Olympic Committee, now the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Um, and what we were trying to do is figure out a better way for sport to address issues of sexual harassment, emotional and physical abuse and sexual abuse. And this is all pre Larry Nasser. This is back in 2013. And uh, the woman who headed that group up was a woman named Malia Arrington. She's a, just a tremendous, brilliant individual and a good friend. And so she pulled a few of us in and we started putting together what is now the United States Center for Safe Sport. Uh, So that's the group that should be familiar to everyone in any sport that's under the Olympic movement. And even those sports not in the Olympic movement, uh, uh, that there's training that goes that you have to undergo. There's workshops, but it is a centralized, independent location. 
And then again, Title IX adjacent, we are actually operating, TNG now is operating like the Center for Safe Sport uh, for the cheerleading association for club cheer called the U.S. All-Star Federation. We just started that about six or seven months ago. Um, and that's been an interesting experience taking that on. And since we're talking about chicks with sticks, uh, um, you know, lacrosse is one of those sports that sits on the, the fringe, I'll say, of the U.S. Olympic Paralympic movement. And so we're actually taking a look at lacrosse and seeing if there's ways we can help uh, USA lacrosse um, accomplish those same goals in investigation and prevention. So we just started that conversation this month, actually. So we'll have to see if that leads anywhere, but we're always willing to help anybody in any way we can, because the, of course the goal is to get to zero, right? That's always the goal. But when we opened the Center for Safe Sport back in 2017, um, I worked with it for about a, six or eight months. And then I was invited back to serve in one of their chief officer roles for a year in 2019 while we uh, expanded because the number of complaints that were coming in the door was just unbelievable. And so we did some policy revision and we did some, uh, had to get the law amended and uh, get some financing done but it was, it was different. And now I'm doing some consulting with the group that's trying to end sexual and physical and emotional abuse in Hollywood. Uh, it's called the Hollywood Commission. And so that's, uh, we just started that right. And that's Malia again, heading that initiative up, which is really exciting because Hollywood's, you know, what's really good is much like uh, Hollywood now, the Olympic movement sports wanted to do it better. They, they wanted to find ways to improve. And that's that's always helpful when the people are, are wanting change. And you're seeing that a lot in sport and athletics right now. People are much more willing. I mean, you have some folks who believe their their job is to kind of keep the status quo, but status quo can't exist because there's things that are just not acceptable. I guess I didn't know that uh, lacrosse wasn't in the conversation. I mean, obviously, because it's not always looked at like that. I think that's kind of interesting that just this month it was kind of brought up that's really interesting. Well, it was brought up at our firm it wasn't like lacrosse approached us we were taking a look at sports that are not formally in the olympic movement right uh, if you're the in, in the olympic movement and you have an issue you're supposed to go to safe sport right um, but there are a number of sports that are not in the olympic movement that have governing agencies and bodies that are doing their best working with law firms and working with um, other independent agencies uh, when cheerleading approached us, it was just because we're, we exist in this space all the time and we've got the background and experience to handle it. So it's just the, it's the thing we do very specialized. And so that's why they approached us. And we've had some other folks reach out to us and say, Hey, can we do what you're doing for them for us? And so we're in those conversations as well. That's awesome. Um, so can you kind of just ballpark explain what title nine is in case anyone is unaware of that? Absolutely. So Title IX for it was passed in 72. So it's it's not new. Um, but the, the law itself, the interesting part about the law itself is it was originally passed uh, in response to research about how women could access higher education. Now, that was the genesis of the whole thing. And so the idea was and if you, there's a great story behind this woman named Bernice Sandler. She goes by Bunny. She passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but she would, she wanted to get her postdoc. She was looking to do some postdoctoral work. And uh, this the way she told the story was a faculty member basically said, why do you want to do that? Like you're a woman of why would you bother getting this advanced degree? And she's like, what kind of question is that? And that prompted her to look into what the admissions rates for women in advanced degree programs, professional schools and undergraduate institutions uh, were And what she found was uh, men were far more likely to get admitted and uh, from undergraduate all the way up and were far more likely to get financial aid and, and scholarships than women were. And so Title IX became a kind of a weird civil rights law because it's the only civil rights law that talks only about sex or gender and only focuses on education. All the other civil rights law apply bigger way out like to everything like large companies and small you have employment laws like title seven you have general discrimination laws like title six but this one's very very unique and that's why but she didn't pass it as a woman's rights law it passed as a civil rights law so it's about equal access to education for everybody and what most people knew about it as until you know me too and time's up and everything that's been happening recently was everybody thought about it as 
how women get to play sports. <laughs> and, and what's really interesting is that's not what the law was about. Uh, actually, the, the first targets of Title IX, if you will, were admissions and financial aid. Because the question is, when you have women getting or men getting into college, just regular college at a six, seven, eight, nine times rate, even though they have the same grades and the same test scores, you got to have a equal access, right? And financial aid is the same way. And so financial aid, though, is a way women could access higher education. It's a way people access higher education. So if you're on scholarship or if it's a way to enhance your educational experience while you're there, because if you're an athlete, even at a, if you're in a division three school and you're an athlete, you have access to tutoring and weight rooms and equipment and things that average students just don't have. And so for about you know, 40 years, most people thought of this as the athletics law. And every time you'd watch the Olympics, they'd talk about how Title IX made it possible for all these women to get into the Olympics. And so it really kept the focus there. And that is, as I mentioned earlier, that is the first half of the law. The half of the law that focuses on equity and education is the part that was really the focus of the law for the first 30 or 40 years. And what it was about is, you know, if I'm playing a sport, at a school, K-12, all the way up to higher ed. And do I have the same access to things as other athletes do on the basis, you know, or do I not because it's a female sport? So do I have the same access to the weight room, to the training table, tutoring, marketing? And that's a big deal right now because of the ability to um, profit from your name and likeness, the NIL issue. Um, and so, it's fascinating how, you know, even today, we're still like wandering this out. Uh, a, a really sort of funny story was back before the law was passed, you had a lot of campuses, a lot of the big, the what we call the power five today, um, were really campaigning against, they wanted to be exempt from Title IX. And the reason they wanted to be exempt from Title IX was they see the writing on the wall. And what Title IX says is, what you're trying to do is have the number of opportunities and people participating in the sport as your enrollment. Well, back then, so let's do it this way. And if you can imagine, because you're listening, there's no visual to this, imagining my hands in front of me like a scale going one way or the other, right? But I can keep the scale even if I say men's lacrosse, women's lacrosse, basketball, basketball, softball, baseball, golf, golf, track, track, cross country, cross country. I can keep going, tennis, tennis, swimming, swimming, diving, diving, football. And football becomes the great unequalizer because there's nothing to offset football. Field hockey's not going to offset it. Equestrian's not going to offset it. It's 108 men that tips the scales. Well, back in 1968 to 1972, that wasn't that big a deal because there were way more men in college than women. But those folks saw the writing on the wall and said, wait a second, at some point, half the population in the country is going to become half the population in school. And in fact, it was around 2006 or seven uh, when uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education, I can't remember exactly which year it was, but they reported there was actually 1.17 women in four-year schools for every one man. So there's actually more women in school than there are men. Now you get into graduate programs in certain areas, you get into law school and medical school. Law school, I think just recently hit 50-50 a couple of years back. Um, there's still more men in those programs, but they saw that writing on the wall and they're like, uh-oh, football is going to screw us in this deal. So we're, we're effed, like this is bad. And so we need to be exempt. And of course they said, nope, you're not going to be exempt. It's been tried over and over and over again. And football and athletics remains part of it. In fact, here's your fun nerd trivia, Ashley. What's the one group on campus that's exempt from Title IX in terms of having to provide equal programs for men and women? Is it a sport? Nope. It's the one place I can say only men can do this and only women can do this. And we don't have to count the opportunities. Um, Greek life, like fraternities and sororities. Nailed it. They're actually exempt from Title IX. Wow. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, they can't sexually harass people or anything like that. They're still <laughs> covered under that part of it. But as far as membership, they can exclude women and they can exclude men from sororities and women from fraternities. And there's no... And it's really fascinating. Uh, and it, I'll make you all cynics. If you want to know why that's the case, and you're thinking there's got to be some great educational reason for it, there's not. If you really want my, my opinion, I, I don't have like the smoking gun memo, but if you think about it, who was passing laws in 1972? Mostly men, mostly college educated men, mostly college educated men who were in fraternities. Far more of them were Greek than played sports. <laughs> so it was really easy to go, 
well, not my fraternity. We're not letting women in there. So no way they're exempt. And they continue to have that exemption to this day. Um, there's been some discussion about lifting that exemption because of all the bad things that have been happening in Greek life lately. I don't see it happening anytime soon, but it's just fascinating to watch this whole thing play out. So uh, that's how sports gets involved in Title IX. So there's there's a thing called the prongs. I don't want to nerd this up too much because some of you are like, oh, my God, what is this going on? But know that your school, every every school, uh, and I'm going to focus on college universities for right now. Every college university that has sports, that receives any federal money, has to. their goal is to have the number of people playing sports and the number of opportunities for people to play sports match the enrollment percentages. So if I'm a college and I have 50% men and 50% women, I need to have 50% opportunities for men and 50% opportunities for women and 50% percentages or participants as well. Most schools try for that. A lot of schools don't. If that doesn't happen, what they can do is um, say, well, here's what we're going to do. We have a, a history of growing the underrepresented groups, usually women. They have a history of growing that group. That's called prong two compliance. They can say, well, we're way off because of football, but we keep adding women's sports to try to get there. And if they can show that, then they can be compliant under Title IX. If they don't do that and they're still out of whack, you have this third prong. This is as nerdy as I'm going to get it. I promise it'll get more fun in a minute. Uh, but the third prong would be, so I'm not equal like I'm supposed to with my enrollment. I haven't been growing women's sports to make it equal. How can I comply? You have to actually demonstrate that. I, so let's just say I'm 50-50 men and women, but because I have football, I'm 70 or 62% men and 48% women, right? So I'm like, 38% women. So I'm way off. My math is bad. So I'm, I'm, I'm off by a bunch. I have to go, well, I, I've tried to add women's sports, but there just aren't any opportunities. We try to do club soccer. We try to do field hockey. And it's called, it's called the unmet interest. <laughs> so it is, there's just not a sport people are interested in or that we could feasibly play. So I was working with the campus, for example, in the Midwest, they've got every woman's sport that's offered in their conference they can offer, but they're still out of whack. And so they have to actually demonstrate. I was like, well, what else could you, could you add women's rugby? Like that's a pretty good sized team. And they're like, but nobody in our conference plays rugby. I go, but you're here in the Midwest. Rugby's kind of a big deal. You know, they could compete against other city teams and club teams. Maybe your conference should add it as a conference. That would get you closer, if not right on par with where you need to be. And so that's the kind of creativity that the government's looking for and that the courts are looking for is, are you constantly trying to do the right thing and have the same opportunities? But uh, actually, I've had schools argue, you know, we're, we can't add women's soccer because women just don't want to play soccer. And I was like, hold on a second. The Women's Sports Foundation has a ton of data that shows when you're moving up through high school, equal numbers of men and women, boys and girls at that age, want to play soccer. And in fact, do play soccer. So what you're telling me is suddenly a woman gets to college and loses all interest in soccer. Like, that's a weird thing to say. Like, is there some sort of thing in the water? Like, it's, it's just not true. Like, you're just not offering the opportunities in the same way you're offering them for men. And so this is, and we could really get into the weeds because then you start talking about scheduling and marketing and tutoring and dining and housing and all the other stuff that's supposed to be equal. And then you can even get into the really nerd stuff about, oh, but what if one sport gets treated slightly better than the other sports? Well, there's this thing called premier sports where I could say men's soccer and women's volleyball are the sports we think are our best sports. And so they're going to be treated better than everybody else. And you could totally do that as long as you do it equitably. <laughs> like that's, that's the rule. The other half of Title IX, though, is the one that's gotten all the press lately, and that's the sexual assault, sexual harassment. If you're sitting here wondering, wait a second, why does sexual assault, no, wait, equal access to education and sexual assault, how does that even tie together? Or sexual harassment, how does that even work? Well, the answer is, and, and that's, you know, when I came and talked to you all at, at Wilkes, you know, we were talking about consent and you know, getting permission to talk to people and touch people and hug people and all those, that's kind of the base level of physical-based harassment. But what the courts decided, the Supreme Court in 1992 actually decided that sexual harassment is covered under Title IX because it's just effectively a way to drum somebody out of school. So the law says that people are supposed to get the same benefits, the same access, and not be discriminated against while they're there. And so what happened was it was a K, it was a K-12 case, actually. So this young woman was being um, 
and I, I hope this doesn't offend anybody or trigger anybody, but it was a, a high school student who was being molested by one of her teachers. And so they end up suing the school saying, hey, this is covered under Title IX. And the school says, wait a second, that's not covered under Title IX. Title IX is about enrollment and admissions and all sorts of stuff, but it's not about sexual harassment. And the Supreme Court says, yeah, it is, because that's because she has to go to school every day and worry that this is going to be the day she's going to be harassed. So she's not getting the same benefit of the education. She's picked on the basis of her sex. And she's also um, uh, being excluded because sometimes she doesn't even show up for school anymore. Now, before everybody gets excited, there's something happening right now in America that you need to know about. It can't just be a single instance of it. It can't even be just one or two instances. So your, your professor or your coach may say something that offends you horribly from a, from a sex standpoint or a gender standpoint or a race or national origin standpoint. That one time, while awful and not appropriate, isn't going to be enough to get over the hump. It's got to be severe and pervasive enough to exclude the person, the reasonable person, from being able to benefit from the program. So coaches are going to say dumb stuff. Your teammates are going to say dumb stuff. Professors are going to say horribly offensive stuff. I say that as a guy who's played, coached, and taught at the college level. I'm pretty sure I've said something that offended somebody at some point. Um, you can't be a dean of students for as long as I was and not offend somebody. But the whole thing is that singular or even two or three times, it's got to be enough where the person would be so severe and so pervasive that it prevents them from being able to go to the class even or benefit from the class. So we're getting a number of people who say, and you've seen this probably in the media where they say, my professor said this one thing that was awful. They called me sweetie in class and that's totally inappropriate. It's sexual harassment. Now nah, it's inappropriate, but that one time is not enough. But can we still talk to the professor and go, hey, you know, it'd be really fun if you didn't call people sweetie in class. Like that would be awesome, right? Or coaches and, you know, that do body shaming or coaches that pick out certain athletes and say horrible things based on their race or whatever. And, you know, I was just talking to a coach last month and he was like, you know, I've been coached for a really long time, Scott. And, you know, years ago, I would say something like that. And it wouldn't matter. I was like, no, it did matter. It's just nobody said anything. So I'm here to tell you the world has changed and it's not acceptable anymore. And uh, that particular coach was using words that would be, that would be sexist and homophobic. <laughs> and so it was, we we're trying to help him understand. You can't say stuff like that anymore. And he was like, I just don't get it. And I was like, well, maybe it's time to retire. Maybe it's time for you to kind of roll out of coaching. If this is not, this is not the world you need to live in. You know, there's a lot of things we got rid of, like uh, outdoor plumbing. Like we, we moved indoors and used the bathroom inside now. And we have electricity and all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, so the world's going to keep changing. But yeah, the sexual harassment stuff is definitely, um, it's what's been big. And it can be everything from actual inappropriate relationships between coaches and athletes and harassment between athletes and athletes, uh, all the way to what's going on right now with the LGBTQ+, particularly the trans athletes and, and what's happening in that community. It's going to be covered under Title IX as well. I've talked for a really long time, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I did have a question though about, uh, you were talking about how um, obviously you need to have equal opportunities for men's and women's teams. And then football is that unequalizer. A question um, of a kind of a current situation that we have at Wilkes. Um, the women's lacrosse team does not currently have a coach. Um, so we're still kind of looking for that. Um, and I mean, nobody really knows what's going to happen. We kind of assume that we will be able to have a season with or without a coach because um, like the athletic department or the AD is supposed to kind of help out with that. Um, but I also want like one of the parents did some research saying that, like, if we don't have a season, the men's team can have a season. And with kind of what you were just talking about. I was wondering if that would be because of the like unequal opportunities. Yes and no. Um, it, it's, it's not equal, it's equitable. And that's a, that's a really important distinction that when, even when I'm teaching law students, they struggle with wrapping their head around that because equal is treating everybody identically all the time. And that's not always a good thing um, because not everybody comes from the same circumstance. Equitable treatment is treating people equally given the circumstances. And we have this really, there's this really cool cartoon. We did not invent it, but it's really cool. It's, it's these three kids and they're trying to watch a baseball game and there's a fence. And the first kid can clearly, and they're all the same height. 
and the first kid can clearly see over the fence and the second kid can't see over the fence because the fence is too tall and they are on lower ground and the third kid's on even lower ground but each kid gets one box and the first kid can see over the fence that's equal treatment but what really needs to happen is the kid on the far right needs three boxes so that they can see the kid in the middle needs two boxes and the kid on the end doesn't need a box at all so that's equitable treatment we take a look at what the circumstances the other thing that happens is it can in in men's and women's sports it's um particularly in college it's not always an apple to apple comparison so if one sport doesn't have doesn't get new york i'll use basketball and we'll come to your lacrosse example um so the, the men's basketball team gets new uniforms and the women's basketball team doesn't get new uniforms. And they're like, title nine. Nope. Cause the men's basketball team might've gotten new uniforms, but the uniform budget for the women's sports went to the women's soccer team. So the women's soccer team, it's about spending it equal by gender. And so good athletics departments will plan this out over time. Well, this weird thing happened, COVID and COVID jacked everything up. It jacked the numbers up. It jacked the seasons up. It just ruined everything. Um, and, and, you know, take the nasty awfulness of people dying and everything that's still happening with it. Sit, don't sit it aside because it, it's horrible. But I want to focus on sport um, that created places where teams didn't have seasons, where nobody had seasons. And the NJCAA, for example, we had a long discussion where were their uh, were their official provider for Title IX and risk management for the NJCAA and long conversations back in the 20, 2020 about what sports could we safely play? Like, can you, can you safely do outdoor track and field? Probably swimming and diving, probably um, cross country. Yeah. Golf. There's a way to do that. Tennis. Yeah, sort of. Um, but when you start getting into the contact sports like football and basketball and what, you know, even the outdoor ones like lacrosse, right. And soccer, there's the risks go up. They're not absolute. You know, when you get into indoor confined sports like wrestling, like, no, <laughs> it's a terror. <laughs> there is no closer proximity and you can't do it with a mask on. And even if you had a mask, it wouldn't make any difference. So that, that, those kind of conversations happen. And so some teams had seasons, some teams had abbreviated seasons. Sometimes it was done by conference. So all that to say, if we have a team that doesn't have a coach and we're trying to find a coach and you know, whether we can find somebody who's qualified and able to coach the team, because the other thing we don't want to do is hire somebody who's terrible, because that's not helpful either. So you got to look at what's the pool of candidates. And if you're not paying attention to every restaurant and store you go to, there's a shortage of labor everywhere and sports is not excluded from that. And so uh, if we can't find somebody, the question will be, how can we make the season happen? Do we want to find volunteer coaches that we can compensate with small stipends and you know, but we don't want that to be a terrible experience either because volunteers are volunteers and can they not make practices? And maybe we have graduate players who could step up and be graduate assistant coaches who could help, you know, just keep things going for the year. Um, but if it got to a point where a school needed to say, hey, this is just, if we had the season, it would be terrible. Um, and it just wouldn't be as functional. Can we keep you here? Can we keep you competing? Uh, can we keep you practicing maybe scrimmages and things like that? Maybe we do put you out there, but I don't want you going 0 and 11 either. Like that's not fun either. Um, and having a, not having a coach is a decided disadvantage. Uh, but we'd like, I'd rather keep the team alive, find the right person. But just because that happened and the men's coach, men do have a coach, doesn't mean we have to cancel their season. Uh, so athletics, unlike some of the academic programs, when we're looking at equality and equitable equitability, uh, athletics, you, you almost get a pass for trying. Um, the government and the courts will go, well, what were you doing to try to make it right? Like, how hard were you honestly and in earnest trying to do the right thing? And I think that's where 80s struggle is because they could try to do the right thing and like the chips just don't fall. And uh, there are some schools, I won't call them out here on a podcast, but they did make the news where you had one school that said, oh, we're going to take advantage of COVID. And we're going to cut a bunch of sports because we don't think they're as profitable, which is sort of a myth anyway. They're not as profitable as the other sports. Well, they're a very, um, I'll, I'll call a duck a duck. They're a very white school. Like they're a predominantly white school. And the sports they cut were basically the sports that were predominantly uh, overrepresented with minority students. And the only way those students could go there was on those athletic scholarships. So suddenly 
they had to like reverse feel to go, well, what we meant was uh, everybody's still playing. And then, That's you know, another school out here in the West had to very famously just to, well, internal athletics famously reinstate their gymnastics and their soccer and their volleyball teams that they cut for financial reasons. Um, you know, and they're, why'd you only cut the women's sports for financial reasons? So these are all like, and you can see actually how quick you can get into the weeds on this stuff. But when I have a situation like you just described, um, if I was doing the audit, that would, those are the questions I would ask is what's the situation? Why don't we have a coach? How hard are we trying? What have we done to try to make it happen? Is there a way we can make a season occur to the best of our ability? Um, Cause we don't want it to be a terrible experience either. Um, you know, I've got one kid that plays sports and one kid that theater is their sport. And uh, for my kid that plays basketball, you know, we were talking about it. And when he first decided to play, I told him, I was like, Hey, you, have, I've told my kids this. I think I might've even mentioned it when I was at Wilkes. My kids have one rule. You're going to do something outside of education academics and you're not going to suck at it. Like those are my only two rules, <laughs> whatever you do, be good at it. Because if you suck at it, it's going to, it's not going to be fun because losing all the time is not fun and not getting better at something is not teaching you what sports is supposed to teach you. It's supposed to teach you discipline and competitiveness in a good way and sports, uh, sports, uh, sports personship and understanding how to be part of something bigger than yourself to reach a goal. If you're never attaining that goal, this is why in high schools actually you have this thing where parents will come. I get this from parents all the time. Well, they have an A team or B team or they have a varsity and a JV, but my kid didn't make it. So they need to have a third team. No, sometimes you just don't make the team like that happens. What would we do? I actually had a parent ask me one time, this is a high school. They said, well, they should have a third team and that third team could compete against eighth grade teams. I was like, do you understand how humiliating that is to be a college so or a high school sophomore junior and you're going to go play volleyball against eighth graders? And do you know how humiliating be if you lose? Like that would be even worse. And they were like, I just wanted to play. And I was like, I wanted to play too. Maybe like there's clubs, there's intramurals, there's rec leagues. Like there's a lot of ways you could go get better, but not everybody makes the team. Like that's a thing. Uh, High school gets a little more of a pass on inequity in numbers because they want more kids to play, particularly in middle school. That's a really long answer to your question. <laughs> I mean, we're kind of just sitting back and watching everything unfold anyway. So I didn't really expect to have a full answer. Um, oh, another question I wanted to ask you was like, obviously you explained where your education was and everything like that, but I would just wanted to ask what, what kind of made you turn from, I mean, you know, you said you did psychology and then you, um, Dean of Students and marketing and things like that. And then you turned your focus from that to Title IX and went to law school. I just wanted to know, like, what kind of, did, was there anything in particular, a specific instance or situation that you were in or you saw someone in that made you want to switch your focus? Yeah, when I was um, working at Texas A&M and in graduate school there, and again, I was working in, in housing and so all, all the residence hall stuff. So I lived in a residence hall and ran the building and I had five buildings that I was responsible for. And then my the other half of my job was student conduct. So if you got in trouble, I was one of the people you had to come see. Uh, if you got written up, right? So most of my stuff was low end. And then I started doing higher and higher end cases. Um, and if you want to move up in education, uh, particularly on the student affairs or on the academic side of the house, you need to get a terminal degree. And so I knew I needed to get a doctorate of some kind. And so I did what I would encourage anybody listening to, um, you know, get mentors. You know, you have coaches who are mentors, find some administrators, find some professors, you know, have good mentors. And so I had three guys who were really important to me. Um, who really helped me out when I first started college and we developed those relationships, still friends to this day. Uh, two of them just retired, uh, but I still call on them. And um, I went to them and said, uh, what do I need to do? And they said, you need to get a terminal degree. If you want to stay in education, it's, it's a thing. Uh, and so I said, law degree, PhD, or there's a thing called an EDD, an educational doctorate. And all three of them told me to get a law degree. And uh, interestingly, all three of these guys are PhDs. <laughs> so I had to ask, wait a minute, you're a PhD and you're telling me to go to law school, help me out. And they said, well, two things. One, 
we don't think you have the patience for a PhD, just from a personality standpoint. That takes five to seven years. And we don't think you're ready for that. And they said, two, you may want to leave the field. You may want to leave education one day and do other stuff. And a law degree is way more versatile. It really gives you the ability to do other things. Like I, my mom told me one time, she's like, well, what happens if this education thing works out? I guess you could be a lawyer. And I was like, yeah, well, it's, it's not a bad fallback position in the grand scheme of things. So uh, all things considered, uh, I, I agree. I look back and um, having coached and mentored a lot of uh, students and student athletes that want to continue their education, I always think about what's your long-term goal and can you achieve it? And to give you some mentality inside of that, same thought process. Um, while I was working, one of, one of my professors who was a colleague, he said, you should get your PhD. If you're going to be a professor, you need to be a PhD. And I said, what will that get me that I don't have now? And he said, well, then you could teach classes. And I said, I already teach classes. And he's like, well, then you could teach advanced graduate level classes. I already teach advanced graduate level classes. So I don't know. <laughs> what am I going to invest five years and a lot of money of my life into that's going to change my life? And there really wasn't anything there. That said, I do like to take, as you learned earlier in my introduction, uh, when the FBI classes on interview technique came up, absolutely, I'll sit in on any of that stuff. Um, I am the quintessential lifelong learner. I'll sit in on nerd classes like Russian relations. Uh, when I met a professor who's teaching a class on that. So I got to sit in on his class just because I was fascinated by it. So this isn't completely related, but because you've had a lot of educational opportunities and gone through a lot of um, different tracks. What, besides mentors, um, what would be your advice for people who aren't quite sure what they want to do or are getting a bachelor's degree and aren't sure where they want to go from that point? Um, you know, the average, and I'll, uh, there's probably new data on this, but I'll use some dated data. The average student that gets to college changes their major three to five times. It's just not unusual because you go into college. I started pre-med. Like that was my goal was to go to medical school. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon because I'd had already so many knee injuries and had surgeries by the time I got to college. I was like, I probably should learn how to do it. Maybe do it on myself. It'll be helpful. Um, it was just one of those things where that got derailed once I realized I wasn't interested in advancing and continuing in the sciences, the, heart, you know, the chemistry and biology just weren't that interesting. And I was thinking about organic chemistry already and thinking, well, that's not going to go well. Um, so I knew that that was not going to be the path. And so I was like, what else am I interested in? So business was interesting to me. Psychology was interesting to me. And then I started thinking, what do I want to do with these things down the road? And that's where my advisors and my mentors were helpful as they kind of tried to steer me in the right direction and keep me as on track as I could. But even then, you may get out with your bachelor's and get a job and think this isn't for me. This is not what I want to do. Uh, the job I had, the two jobs I got when I first got out of college, uh, man, this is going to a weird place now. Uh, the first job I got was with a, a health insurance company and in their marketing department. And that lasted a month and a half. And I was like, I, I went to my boss there and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not happy here. This is not, I don't, you know, and you try to say it nicely, but in my head, I'm like, I don't want to move up here. Like, this is not how I see my life ending. Um, and so then I took a job with a, uh, a man. It was a management program for a large building conglomerate. And I was in there for about four and a half months. And on, uh, the guy who was running it, who was the executive, was the chief of staff or the CEO. He actually called me and was like, hey, you're great at this, but you're not happy go find out what makes you happy because you don't want to be me one day. And this is what you're studying to do. And I was like, you're right, Mark. I don't want to be you. <laughs> it's no offense. <laughs> you seem like a really nice guy. And you seem very happy. And he's like, I'm excited about building buildings and you're not. He's like, you need to go find out what you're excited about. So that's what I did. That's a great boss. I, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't say that I've ever had a boss like that, but that seems like a great piece of advice. Yeah. The, um, I, I tell people this all the time, like I'll, I'll stop doing what I'm doing right now when I feel like I have to go to work, you know, and I, right now I get to go to work. I love what I do and we're changing the world a little bit at a time. So we're going to keep doing it. That's awesome. That's, I mean, that's the goal. That's always what, when I think about what I want to do once I graduate from college, that's always my goal is to kind of change lives. Um, so it's, it's, uh, 
helpful and it's a positive force to be able to see that there are people who are actually doing this. Yeah. Well, the three things that change the world, I, I believe more than anything else are education, sport, and art. So if, if you're in those areas, you're definitely have the ability to change the world in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, not to belittle any other doctors <laughs> do amazing work every day, but I, when I think about the culture shifts that happen in the world, right? You know, if you have somebody like, you know, Dwayne Wade, who has a kid who's trans and Dwayne Wade says, yeah, they are. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. He flipped a hundred thousand minds that day. That's the power of sport. You know, that's, that can happen. And suddenly the things that, you know, it, people who look up to him, you know, um, uh, Rapino, I mean, same thing, right? I mean, these people, once they get this platform and they use it effectively, but even somebody who's coaching college or coaching high school or coaching middle school, you have an amazing ability to change the culture there. And those kids that you're working with, the cascading effect of the way they'll change the culture is just unbelievable. That's why teachers and coaches and people who use their platforms, it, it's amazing. Yeah, I think I think about that a lot. Um, I I coach a high school lacrosse team. Nice. And so I think about because I mean, it's just it's just a club lacrosse team. You know, they're looking to get you know scouted by college coaches, and yeah. so it means a lot to me to put a good image in their brain and set a good example for them on how they can. Not that I love lacrosse and I love sports, but it's not the end of the world if you're not, you know, playing D1. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for some kids, their career will end in high school. For some, they'll end in college. For some, they'll end, you know, at the next level, professional or Olympian or Europe or China or wherever they can go internationally. Um, you know, and for some of us, you know, we get out of college and what do we do? We keep playing we find clubs and leagues for adults and because the love is still there and you love to compete and you might switch sports. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to undo the competitiveness. I, I, it's a, it's a thing my wife gives me a hard time about. She's oh. like, you really hate to lose every game. I was like, I hate to lose everything. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm a very competitive person. There's never, there's never anything that I do that I can't, that I'm okay with losing. It's, <laughs> It's not, right. it's but just you know what not in my DNA. It, but it's one of those things. Like I've seen kids that play everything from video games to board games and they're bad losers, right? I mean, sports is a zero sum game. There's a winner and there's a loser. There's not, you know, tie, like not everybody doesn't win. Like that's not a thing. Um, and I told my wife when we were watching like some, like some of you started playing basketball, you know, and there were some kids who were just shitty losers. <laughs> you know, I was like, that, that's what sport taught me is how to lose gracefully and how to learn from a loss. Like you can take something away from everything and go, well, that's a mistake. I won't make again. Right. And you, next I, time try harder. I think I learn a lot more from losing than I do from winning for sure. Cause when I, when we win games, I, I bad habit, but I typically don't reflect on them as much as I do right. when I, when we lose. Yeah. I had a coach one time and for the for folks listening, you're like, this is about title nine, right? Um, <laughs> there, there is, you know, actually that's one of the arguments that was made is that sports aren't educational was why one of the exemption arguments for title nine. And I was like, that's flies in the face of everything we've ever said about sport. Um, but I had one coach that when we win a game, you know, we, he acted almost to the point where I would look at my team and go, we, we won, right? Like he's, he's being super hard on us, but it's like, yeah, I think we did. Maybe we should go back out and check, but I feel like we won the game, but that was his way of saying you, you learn from everything. Like you, right. you were not perfect. You just won. Right. Yeah. So to circle back and kind of wrap things up, um, yeah. what kind of advice do you have for a person who feels like they're in a situation where title nine would apply to them, whether that be like sexual harassment or emotional, physical abuse, or something that more applies to the education aspect. 
Yeah. So if you feel like something's happening, that's not right. So let's do the two sides of it. If you feel like, wait a second, I'm being treated differently in this program. And I think it's because I'm under title nine, it would be a woman or under the, uh, your sexual identity or orientation, whatever. It could also be your race or your disability or your veteran status, your ethnicity or national origin or religion or any of the other protected classes. If you're ever feeling that way, first thing to do is talk to whoever it is on your campus who's in charge of that. So you might, you have to have a Title IX coordinator by definition. Every campus from K-12 on up has to. Um, So find out who your Title IX coordinator is. They also might be called the the EO person, uh, the equal opportunity person, or they may be called the Office of Institutional Equity or Diversity and Inclusion. There's a lot of different names for them. But ultimately, if you Google on your school's website and you go Title IX, a name has to pop up. Go talk to them and say, hey, this thing's happening um, and I'm feeling like it's not fair. The other thing you can do is go talk to, uh, you know, the person in charge. So if it's your athletics director or if it's uh, the chair of your department, your academic department, if you're in psychology and you're like, wait a second, I don't think I'm getting access to these classes because I'm a man. Like they only pick women for this class. Why is that the case? Like, why are they getting all the internships? Go talk to the chair of the department. Go, hey, this is what it seems like. Um, What's going on? Like, why why do I feel that way? And see if they'll give you an answer that you think is something that shows that they're thoughtful and that they're considering it and they too recognize there's issues. Or maybe they're like, well, it's not really an issue. It's you. You're not getting these opportunities, but it's not because you're a man. It's because, Scott, your grades are terrible. And so that that, that could be the case. Um, But then you could talk to the Title IX person uh, and, and see what's going on. If it's you're being sexually harassed, if you're being... Uh, touched inappropriately, um, could be verbally. Like I mentioned earlier, that that singular out verbs, like people using words, that singular time. Once people start touching people inappropriately, you know, the number of times it takes goes way down, particularly if they're touching certain parts they shouldn't be touching, then it goes way down. Um, we had this whole discussion when we were starting the Center for Safe Sport about coaches slapping the butts of athletes. And basically we said, no more. Because an athlete really can't tell a coach no. You know, now, if, because Delaney and you are both teammates, right? So if the two of you as peers, like one of you slaps the other's butt, then we're going to wait for somebody to go, hey, I, that, that's not appreciated. Like, don't do it. But we try to teach now more and more of any kind of touching is unwelcome. And I think we talked about that when I was like, you don't get, you can't just walk around and hug people. Like that's not a thing. Like it's, you still have to get permission. It may be nonverbal permission. It may be verbal permission, but you can't just touch people. Right. Um, and so, but when there's that power dynamic, that is something to take into account. And same kind of thing. If you're like, you know, my coach probably shouldn't be saying these things. You can, if you feel comfortable, I always like to go like to the horse's mouth first, right? So if my coach was saying something that made me uncomfortable, I'd probably go to the coach and go, hey, when you say these things, when you say, you know, I'll say it as I'll say this as a man right now. If my coach is like, hey, you feel like a girl, I'd probably go. That's offensive to me, you know, because I work with women athletes who are far superior athletically to me. So when you say it, it feels like women are demeaning and they can't throw. Well, of course they can. And in fact, a lot of them can throw whatever it is we're throwing probably better than I can. So I think it, in, in worst coach, I feel like it sends a message of underlying sexism. Right. So I appreciate it. But I know not everybody's me, right? And so if you're not comfortable having that conversation, sometimes you find that person, maybe it's the student affairs person inside of athletics. Maybe it's the Title IX deputy coordinator in athletics or your, um, uh, someone of your athletics directors or associate athletics directors. But if, if that's not the case, you know, if you can't go to them and say, this is really what's bothering me, there was a great article. Anybody listening can look this up. It was a law school professor. I want to say in Chicago, but I'm probably wrong. Um, but he, when teaching constitutional law, would use the N-word as an example of free speech. And, you know, you hear that a lot now, in the not a lot, but there's some in the paper where they're like, that professor's got to be fired. They should never work there. That's not what happened here. Actually, what happened was some students went to him after class and said, hey, when you do that, I get that it's sort of a shock value, free speech kind of thing. Let me tell you what that word means to me. You as a white privileged man saying that to teach us, I get it. Me as an African-American law student, let me tell you what that word does inside of me. 
And he wrote this really great op-ed piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education about it. And he said, you know what? I stopped using it. I never had that moment of empathy, but rather than have this, you must die attitude, they went and had that dialogue. And that's cool for him for being receptive and not realizing he hadn't thought through things. And some of you who are in college listening to this are like, wow, you know, my, not all my professors would be that receptive. True, not all people would be that receptive, but you don't know until you try. You don't know until you go and say, when you say these things, and I will say as a professor, I'll give you this one last little quick story that I didn't even think about. I used to teach this class called University 101. It was kind of like get to know college and learn study habits and things like that. And um, the very first day I had a section that was just for pre-law kids. So it's your first year student. I was the very first class you had because I like to teach at eight in the morning. And so it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m., first class, first day of class, we did like, who's your, what's your name, call, roll, make sure I got everybody's names and pronouns and all that kind of stuff, right? And then I said, all right, put on, you know, close your books, get a pencil and pen out, we're going to take a quiz. And so we took this quiz and I asked questions and my goal in the thing, I was like, hey, this quiz really doesn't really matter. You know, it is a quiz. And my goal was to kind of see where they were. So I'd ask questions like, you know, what are the three branches of government? I could see, <laughs> let's do some basic political science stuff. Could you tell me your pre-law? There's some things you probably, how many justices are in the Supreme Court? My favorite answer ever was one. And I was like, um, I said justices, it's plural in the question. So you got to listen to the question at least. Uh, you know, we had all these, but it was just, you know, how much did they know about things in the world? And so I asked those questions and most of the students honestly would fail the test. Like they'd get half the questions wrong or more. And, but the whole thing didn't count. It was like one half of one half of one point of their grade, right? Like it, it just didn't matter in the long run. But my TA came up to me after uh, class and she was a senior and she said, you know, I took your class four years ago. And I should have said this to you then. I was like, what? She goes, I don't think you realize how many students are first generation students in your class, Professor Lewis, but you just gave them the very first test they ever took in college and they failed it. And I was like, oh, oh my God, that's horrible. I'm a horrible person. I should not do that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. I said, but I still want to get that gauge. How do we do that? And she's like, well, maybe you should put more emphasis on this quiz doesn't count. Or maybe you should go, let's go through the questions and hear some things you need to know. What a great education from a 21-year-old teaching me how to be a better professor. But I'd never had that lens. Fun fact, first-gen college. Really? Yeah, that's even terif more terrifying, right? And so it was, it was a great lesson, but that's the thing. So if you have, you're having that moment and you feel like you can talk to the person, talk to the person. If you want help learning to talk to that person, find that mentor, find that title nine person, find that diversity inclusion person, have them coach you on how to have that conversation or maybe go with you and have that conversation. Um, but not everything that's inappropriate is against the rules, but that doesn't mean we can't have a conversation and be more civil to one another. I think that's a great way to wrap things up. Um, so just if you want to kind of plug yourself, if you have any, <laughs> uh, whether that be social media or your email, if anyone has any further questions for you. Yeah, I learned this about five or six years ago. Um, and this is what I, uh, if, you, if you look me up and Google me, I am the first thing that pops up under W. Scott Lewis, which is a little scary, but um, you can always email me and I will try to get back to you as fast as I can. Uh, I mentioned this when I was at Wilkes, I have a real soft spot for athletes uh, and I still work and mentor athletes. And so if there's something I can ever do, whether it's career path or you're in a situation and you want that same kind of coaching, reach out and I will get back to you as fast as I possibly can. So. Um, did you, did you just want to say your email? Oh, yeah, I guess I could say that's even smarter, right? <laughs> um, and so it's scott.lewis at TNG. That's like Tango Nancy Golf uh, Consulting.com. So scott.lewis at TNG Consulting.com. Perfect. I'll also put that in the episode description just to make it easier. But thank you so much for coming on today. I'm sad Delaney couldn't hear because she was super excited. Well, next time I'm up in uh, Wilkesbury, you know, we'll go grab a cup of coffee and Delaney and I can catch up that way. That'd be awesome. She actually goes to Pace right oh, now. Is she really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, then not in Wilkesbury. That would be yeah. really convenient. <laughs> she she comes she comes down a lot because she has a soft spot for us. But um, awesome. yeah, she's she's killing it up there. So we're that's great for her. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And for everybody who's listening, uh, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and be safe and be well. 
Thank you guys all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thank you again to Scott Lewis for chatting with me. Um, you guys can all look forward to hearing Delaney's melodious voice next week. As always, you guys can follow us on Instagram, Chicks with Sticks Podcast. You can send us an email, chickswithstickspodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we will catch you on the flip side. Bye.